This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. And that is House Speaker Nancy Pelosi announcing the result of a vote, which will lead to a more public impeachment inquiry, that vote coming along party lines. Let's break down what it means going forward. June Grasso here with us, legal analyst, host of Bloomberg Law. Carol's in my neighbor right here yeah. uh, in the newsroom. Yes. And Ryan Teague back with political reporter for Bloomberg. He joins us on the line from our 991 studio in Washington, D.C. So, June, let me start with you. Give us the mechanics here. What did they vote on and what does it mean? So they voted to proceed based on their resolution. What this means is that now six committees are going to be investigating. And one of those, the House Intelligence Committee, is going to be holding public hearings. They're all going to take their reports and give it to the Judiciary Committee. The Judiciary Committee is going to be holding public hearings then, and President Trump will be allowed to take part in that through his lawyer if he follows the rules, so to speak. And then they will draft the articles of impeachment. Then the House votes on it. So it's a, it's a tiered process. So, Ryan, come on in because I'm curious about, tell us about kind of the conversations you're hearing uh, in the Washington, D.C. newsroom, what you're hearing uh, from Capitol Hill about this process as it moves along. I think there's no doubt that today was uh, weirdly uh, a good day for Trump in that uh, the president saw basically no defections on his side. The only Republican who voted for it is now a former Republican, Justin Amash. And so that is the kind of party solidarity that he needs to survive in the Senate, um, where it's going to be a lot more crucial to hold the line. And also, I think, to send a signal to his supporters that this is a, a partisan effort that Democrats are supporting and he's done nothing wrong. And so, June, all of us are sort of getting up to speed in many ways about all of these processes because we haven't done this uh, in quite some time, uh, well over 20 years, going back to uh, Bill Clinton. What's changed, if anything, from a process perspective, or are there parallels that we should be drawing uh, back to the late 90s? There are parallels, and the Republicans are complaining that this process is unfair and that you can't cure the process at this point because it's already too late. Well, the process is this much like- This is the like fruit what, of the poison tree argument, that, right? That's a, that's a criminal argument. I, you know, this is a political process, and this is not a criminal trial. They keep on making those criminal arguments, yeah. and the president keeps saying, I'm not, it's not fair. Well, he's not supposed to be part of this impeachment process. But just to go back. I feel like, just to be clear, June looked at me like slightly impressed, but also with a little bit of disdain, which I feel like is I would never sort of a look do that I get to from you, Carol Jason Master, too. Yeah, well, never, anyway, never. Go on. I'm so, sorry. But, but you have to remember something. That what's happening now is it's sort of like the grand jury process, right. what's going on. And in the, in the Clinton and Nixon cases, what happened behind closed doors was, was they had independent prosecutors who did the work that the House now has to do right. for itself, made the record. You had, you remember Ken Starr's report? Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was voluminous. And so they were able to work on that. So what Ken Starr did was in 
private. So that's sort of the process now. It's sort of the, the grand jury process. But there is going to be a lot in the open now. And perhaps the Republicans will have to come around to defending President Trump on content, which is a lot harder. Ryan, I think there was a feeling at some point that as this impeachment uh, proceedings moved along among the Democrats that, you know, the president would slow down in terms of doing his job and, and, you know, being president. But, you know, here we are, we're dealing with trade issues. It still seems like a lot of stuff is going on. Is that safe to say or is the White House, you know, kind of getting sidelined and distracted because of this impeachment proceeding? Well, I think if you recall the, the Clinton impeachment, one of his tactics for fighting back on it was to be seen busy doing his job. Mm. And uh, I think um, that's certainly been the recommendation to the White House that they stay busy. Um, They're continuing to do stuff that they were already doing. I think they haven't quite done as well as not seeming obsessed with it because uh, the president's tweets uh, show that he's clearly preoccupied with impeachment. But it's not like they can stop you know, their work to um, to handle this for however long, however many weeks it's going to take. Well, and June, it's interesting, too, to think about how you do mount a legal defense here. And I do recall, and obviously you would know it much better than I, but going back to Clinton, who was clearly not always uh, the most sort of buttoned down when it came to just about anything. Uh, But when you think about that legal defense, it was a very rigorous, well-planned defense. We don't get that sense yet from the Trump side. In fact, Clinton's defense was so rigorous and well-planned that it started well before the hearings with messaging. So he had a messaging and it was sent out to Democrats and Democrats did the messaging. Here you just have President Trump doing the messaging and you have at times Republicans not knowing exactly though I did notice a little bit of a change in the messaging of Republicans today they not only argued process but they started to argue that there's only a year left until an election Mm. why do this now why not have the people decide what Mm. happened here so that's a little bit of a shift it's like they sort of argued that they argued that about a Supreme Court seat as well so I guess if like one fourth of the time we're just not going <laughs> right. to do stuff because it's an election year, then that there's a lot of stuff we're not going to get done. Then we'd really not get anything done. You and I are very much on the same page, Ryan. I, as you were saying that, I just said, that's the Merrick Garland argument. Uh, great stuff from both of you. Great team. Ryan Teague back with political reporter for Bloomberg. Joining us from the nation's capital and June Grasso. We love Junie, legal analyst and host of Bloomberg Law uh, right here in New York City. So a Brexit delay, another general election in the UK. Not easy being a business trying to navigate the UK and European markets. Here with what it means when it comes to global real estate. Jonathan Goldstein, he's chief executive officer of Kane International, based in London. He joins us on the phone uh, in New York. Uh, So delighted to have you uh, with us. Tell us a little about how you read the tea leaves when it comes to Brexit. Oh, well, Brexit. Hi, Carol. Brexit is the gift for English people, British people that keeps on giving. <laughs> yes, it is. And uh, we, we, we've been at battle on this for, for, for years now. And the, the truth is that this phrase that Brexit will be done by the 31st of October has proved to be false. Mm. But the real truth is that the trade arrangements with the European Union and the rest of the world are so far away from having even been contemplated by the British government that even if we manage to leave the European Union by the end of January, which is the new deadline, we've got years and years of this noise and painful debate to go through because there is no strategy 
Hmm. No British political party has any strategy in real terms about how to engage with the rest of the world and what vision they have for Britain going forward. And that is a very, very disappointing situation to be in. And so at the same time, Jonathan, you have investors, you have consumers, businesses, all having to make decisions about their individual businesses, all having to make decisions about their own geography uh, in in many ways. What are you seeing so far, especially because, as you say, we're sort of used to the delays, but you can't delay forever. So what do you do? No, but I think, I think you're seeing a number of narratives. First of all, you have to say that London stands alone. London stands alone because of the very many advantages and the positions it, ha- it has as a global city. London will be fine throughout the whole of this uh, scenario. Yeah. We are seeing, however, a number of secondary cities in Europe, be it Dublin, be it Warsaw, picking up businesses, picking up occupational space, because people are taking a hedge and are looking for optionality in the marketplace. So I think that you have to distill between the major cities and the rest of the country. And I think what we are seeing is that people are putting their investment decisions largely on hold in Britain, waiting for this mess to be cleaned up. If you look at investment volumes into Britain in real estate, for example, over the course of the last 12 months, down about 40%. Mm. So I think people are we're really seeing people go on hold. And we're having a political class who seem to want to go off on their own in their own very merry way and detach themselves from the reality of day-to-day trading and day-to-day businesses which unfortunately is going to hurt the population at the end of the day. So Jonathan, does, does this mean as someone you know in the real estate space that you are looking to develop more properties outside of the UK? Is that yeah. where you see the opportunities as a result specifically of Brexit? Yeah. 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 I mean, post the Brexit referendum in 2016, and when before between 14 and 16, we built up thousands of residential units in London, office developments, etc. But after 16, we diversified. We went into Spain, we went into Ireland, we went into Poland, because we saw stability and we saw the options and the the possibility of of, of growth. And I'm afraid that decision has been proved to be right, and I say that as a British person, because obviously we're back at the end of 2019 and we still don't have clarity. And I think I need to make the point to you again. Even if we approve the withdrawal agreement, which Boris Johnson has now brought to the table, put aside the fact that it's probably worse than the withdrawal agreement that Theresa May put forward. Put that aside. We have zero clarity on the nature of our trading relationship with our largest trading partner going forward. During the course of 2018, we traded almost $250 billion with the European Union. Our next largest trading partner was the USA in $60-odd billion. And then the sum of the next 10 don't get anywhere near the volume of our trade with the European Union. So what's going to happen is we're going to pass a withdrawal agreement at some point in time, I believe, but then we've got two years of eternal debate about what is the nature of our trading relationship with our largest trading partner, and that's a desperate position to be in. Right. Well, and you have the President of the United States essentially saying, I believe I read a headline a little bit ago, essentially saying, I'm not sure I'm really ready to negotiate a trade deal with the UK, with Boris Johnson as the Prime Minister. So it only gets more and more complicated. Jonathan Goldstein, CEO of Kane International. He joined us on the phone from New York City.
All right. Well, I'm not sure anybody's sure about much of anything when it comes to U.S.-China trade. One thing we are sure of, Sean Donnan is all over this story. I also feel like we're getting a little bit of Sean Donnan back now that the World Series is over, because at least based on his Twitter feed, he's a pretty big baseball fan. And yet among and amid all of this, he has continued to be a scoop machine he and Jenny Leonard both all over the trade story. Sean's senior trade reporter for Bloomberg. He joins us from our 991 studio in D.C. His latest story with Jenny and Stephen Yang, all about maybe some doubts on the Chinese side about where we go from here in these trade negotiation, negotiations. Excuse me, Sean, bring us up to date. Did anyone mention that the Washington Nationals won the World Series last night? Uh, I didn't hear that. Yeah, World Series champs. World Uh, Series champs. Congrats. We're talking trade, okay? Oh, okay. All right. So sorry. Uh, Look, we've spent a couple of weeks uh, talking to uh, Chinese officials, people who've been talking to Chinese officials, people who've been going through Beijing, uh, lots of folks who've been engaging with the Chinese. And there's a common theme that comes out of all of those conversations, and that is that while we, in the coming weeks, will probably get what the president has called phase one of a historic trade agreement with China, it's unlikely from the Chinese perspective that we'll ever get phase two. And that's important because uh, phase one looks like a pretty narrow deal. And we're going to start wondering fairly quickly going into next year and uh, the 2020 election uh, whether this whole trade war was worth it if all we get is phase one. You know, I can't help but feel maybe I'm becoming a bit of a conspiracy, uh, you know, <laughs> conspiracy person. But I wonder, is this what they're doing? Is this the tactic from Washington? Just kind of go back and forth. And I know this is China, but I mean, and just be like, we get to a point where like, I don't even want to hear any more about it. I don't even care if you get a deal. Like, I just wonder what the heck is going on. Yeah. So look, if you go back to 2017, uh, when the Trump administration started talking about taking on China, one of the things that you heard over and over from officials again was, we're not going to be like other administrations. Mm -hmm. We're not going to let the Chinese wait us out. We're not going to let them play us. Well, you know, a few years on, it looks like the Chinese have been doing exactly that in some ways. Uh, There's a lot of concern in this administration that the Chinese uh, are trying to wait out President Trump and hoping for a change of uh, the guard in the White House uh, come next November. And uh, the president's been fairly open publicly about that and that he doesn't want to let him get away with that. The problem is that the Chinese operate on a slightly longer political cycle than we do here in the United States. uh, And that's why they've always been able to to use this, this method. It's, you know, the other side of it is here in Washington, you talk to a lot of people who've been involved in taking on China over the years, and they all applaud the Trump administration for identifying some legitimate problems, uh, for getting the Chinese to the table, Uh, but they also really worry that we may be wasting an opportunity here. This is a once-in-the-generation opportunity to try and rewrite the relationship uh, with China. Now, the Trump administration insists, and the president was out tweeting again today, that it is doing exactly that, and that this phase one deal is going to be full of substance, uh, and that phase two will follow shortly thereafter. But 
they need the Chinese to engage and all the signs that we get from the Chinese is they're not willing to really uh, change their red lines or engage in the same way that the Trump administration wants them to. Well, and meanwhile, the political calculus, excuse me, it feels like is only getting more complicated here in the United States, Sean, and even setting aside impeachment for a second, we still don't have USMCA through. You guys have done some great reporting around that as well. So help us understand sort of where it fits priority-wise, because it's not hard to see a situation where there's a little bit of run out the clock, sort of declare victory and run out the clock here, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. So, look, there's there's two points on the political side. One is Donald Trump needs to prove that this bold, new, pugnacious attitude towards trade policy uh, actually delivers things. And that's why USMCA passing Congress is important. Trade deals are great if you can negotiate them, but if you don't get them through Congress, they never take effect. And that's exactly what happened with the Obama administration with the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Uh, so he needs to get the USMCA through Congress and have that that win. He also promised to rewrite the relationship with China to take him on in a way uh, that no previous administration had and that he would bring him to the table and get this amazing deal. Well, he needs to get that amazing deal again to prove uh, the concept. Or he needs to at least prove that he's on that path and that a second term might get him to close that path. And that's a little bit what he's doing here with the phasing of, of, right. of, of this deal. Here, The second piece uh, on the political side is the economy. Look, we've had GDP numbers out this week showing the economy growing at 1.9 percent. Remember back, Donald Trump promised 3 percent plus growth to the, to, to the voters. And there's a lot of economists out there pointing to his trade wars as one of the big drags on the economy. You look at the manufacturing sector, it's coming off a, to, a, a tough year. There's a genuine recession going on in parts of the manufacturing sector. And there's fears that that could still bleed through to other parts of the economy. Will that get us a broader recession? We don't know. But this is not the booming economy that Donald Trump promised. So that's a political problem for him, potentially, or at least something that the Democrats can point to. Well, I do wonder, and he's got to be thinking about the 2020 uh, elections, um, Sean, and I do wonder, you know, wouldn't he like to be able to sit up at a podium and say, hey, look what I got done, and include U.S.-China on that list? Will he be ultimately able to say something? Because he has gotten something done. Yeah, he got he got phase one done, and he's likely, or he's going to get phase one done in all likelihood. Um, and he will point to that and claim that as a big victory. I think if you look at the elements of that phase one, there's a reason to be skeptical. Part of it is is a return to agricultural purchases at levels that were there before the trade war started. The intellectual property provisions that, that we're talking about are, are things that the Chinese are doing anyway. The opening up of the financial sector is things the Chinese are, are doing anyway. So there's going to be a lot of people uh, questioning the details here and whether it's worth it. I think, you know, it, at the same time, look, I'm a trade geek. Uh, I will be looking at the details here. I think most voters won't be. They will see the president right. claiming a victory, claiming a deal, and he'll have some political uh, weight or some political benefit as as a result of that. But what look, you, this... Yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, what are you going to do without baseball? It's a long, cold winter. It <laughs> is. It is. Well, especially There'll when you live in a... trade news. Especially when you live in a town <laughs> with the Redskins. We're just going to leave it there. But go Nats. Nice job. Congrats on that. Sean Donnan, senior trade reporter for Bloomberg, joining us from our 99.1 studio in Washington, D.C. Well, we're talking about 
I guess a little bit of new attitudes, but we're also talking about the new economy. Uh, and it's all in the issue, the current issue of Bloomberg Business Week on newsstands, online, and at Bloomberg.com, really teeing up the Bloomberg New Economy Forum that will be held in Beijing in a couple of weeks. From trade and technology to climate change, immigration, inclusion, so much. Economics. <clears throat> See, it caught me. Wow. Economics editor Christy Delinclad. You went like full Grover there talking about the new economy uh, <laughs> I love issue. Grover. Uh, Christina Lindblad, economics editor. She oversaw the issue. She joins us along with Joel Weber, Bloomberg Businessweek editor, who was really singing your praise the other day. You can't sing it enough. She like did the whole thing by herself. Oh, there, there are other people too. But So, Christina, what, what does the new economy issue mean to you? Well, I like to th- actually, when I first heard the term new economy, I thought, what the heck does that mean? <laughs> and so it's actually a nice challenge to think about what, what it is. And I think of it as the, the ideas that bring different parts of the world together. We have a, now sort of like these kind of geog- geographies, you know, developing countries and developed countries and emerging markets and industrialized nations. And this one cuts through that because right. there are sort of commonalities, uh, as you will see in our cover, that bring different parts of these continents together. And so... That was way better put than I could yeah. put it. <laughs> That was was perfect. And what's interesting, too, because we've had a chance to go through all the stories. We also had a chance to talk with both of you for our weekend show and to go a little bit deeper than maybe we can today. But how do you start to choose? Because part of it is finding these, for lack of a better term, sort of emblems, you know, sort of these entry points into exploring, say, climate or uh, governance. And so how do you do that? How do you choose the stories you want to tell? Um, I think that um, it's a mixture of big ideas and then also finding, for me, finding voices that speak to these issues. Because otherwise, if you just did all big ideas, you'd be kind of like a briefing document. And and so to have the voices, so for example, in the climate change uh, part, we, we took a two week, you know, we sent a photographer and a reporter for two weeks down this trip to Zambezi in southern Africa, which is a, a part of the world that's very vulnerable to climate change, not that much government resources for mitigation. So, and that was a really vivid way because uh, I was surprised too, because for example, I hadn't thought about the fishermen, I'd been thinking about the farmers. That one really, thinking, that, it totally stuck with me too. Yeah. You know, I, it's like this. This idea that you're so dependent, that culture is so dependent on the river. All the food comes from the river. And yet, once you have climate change and the, and the water levels recede, you're not having the same fishery as you had before. And like they're not even able to get the fish that they would be throwing away before. That's how, how hard it is. And when you think about that across the world and, and all the different other Zambezis that are out there that aren't in the issue, you start to sort of feel how if we don't have a place that we can talk about some of these issues and attempt to find some solutions, then we're really going to be spinning out of control. Like this is attempt to like tap the brakes and actually keep things on the rails a little bit. I also, can I just throw out there, I love the story about the plastic bank. Yeah. I mean, I just think, and you talk about the problems and you're right, Joel, that like if we don't start dealing with some of this, you know, we're getting to a point of no return. And I love this idea of too much plastic that's out there and, you know, you can't recycle it all or or what do you do? And the plastic bank has come up with a solution. Right. So the idea was to really incentivize people not to throw plastic out, which is a problem in a lot of countries. And that's how it finds its way into rivers, eventually into ocean. So... 
um, you know, recycling centers have existed for a long time. But, uh, you know, this guy, this entrepreneur, um, Katz from Canada, you know, came up with this idea of, you know, kind of having like a digital wallet system attached to the recycling centers that already existed and, and sort of pay people to have like, you know, to start accumulating deposits um, into these accounts. And, you know, to us, it sounds like no money at all. You know, we have a photograph of like, you know, this giant bag of plastic bottles that got somebody 36 cents. But, you know, if you're making like $120 a month, which is what you some just of had these... a good day. Yeah. Right. This, is, this isn't bad at all. And, so. and bigger than that is like how... So I, I think of it in general as it's really easy just to talk about problems, right? And we can talk about lack of banking or... or plastic being everywhere and taking over the oceans and everything else and yet there's this really novel solution which is like let's take this thing that's a problem and flip it on its head and say like hey yeah. there's actually some currency that we could actually adopt out of this that's pretty novel and it suddenly there's no more plastic in the streets of a country that had previously been overrun by plastic so i think that you know in general we talk about this a lot at business week if like there's the world that's littered with problems and then there are people who are entrepreneurs or companies who step into that void and say, actually, we can find a solution for these problems. Right. And that is exactly what we try and identify and talk about in a lot of this issues, right. an attempt at finding elegant solutions for really difficult pressing problems. Right. And it's definitely one that you want to sit down uh, and read, maybe take it on a plane or a train because there's a lot yeah. to dig into. And even if you play around with it online, a lot to explore, especially when we talk about the drivers. Are you working on next year's disruptors. already? I'm already thinking. <laughs> day one. I knew you would be. Day one. All right. Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week and Christina Lindblad, the global economics editor for Business Week, the architect of the new economy issue. I'm driving in my car, I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk to music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, count you down. Just got about 12 minutes left in today's trading session. It is time for the drive to the close. Leo Kelly is back with us, founder, CEO, and CIO at Verdant's Capital Advisors. They've got a roughly $2 billion in client assets. He's based in Baltimore, back in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio in New York. Welcome back. It's good to be back. Thanks for having me. Is it good to be uh, investing in this environment? It is good. We're making new highs. Um, I don't think I want to be a fixed income investor. Yeah, uh, but still. The, the equity <laughs> markets like. are, are up, and yet there's value in the marketplace. You can still find value. You just have to look a little, little closer. Like where? Yeah, where? Well, uh, actually, if you look at value stocks today, there's a two standard deviation valuation gap to large cap growth. We have not seen that since 1999. That's wide. That's wide. And 99 was the last time right before the tech market crash when we had an exciting new technology that was running up stocks. So we're seeing some similarities there. I don't think we're at that, that kind of uh, peak level yet, but uh, there's, there's a big gap in those stocks. 
And so as you think about coming off of the Fed meeting yesterday, what do you make of the fixed income market uh, right now? I mean, we were talking about it, mm -hmm. uh, talking about mortgage rates and things like that, sort of the, the, the non-equity world, especially because things are not necessarily going according to script, at least it, it feels like. You know, we have almost, not a housing boom, but certainly a lot of people buying houses because mortgage, rate, mortgage rates are so low, and yet people are looking for yield. The fixed income picture, what do you make of it? Well, uh, first of all, in the housing market, right, it is the perfect environment. We've yeah. got low, un low unemployment. We have wages slowly starting to grind higher, and, and, and mortgage rates are low. So in terms of fixed income, uh, you know, I think the best move in fixed income is buy something else. <laughs> um, you, you've got low rates. You don't have an environment um, where... Even though the Fed seemed to maybe indicate or the markets read it that they might be pausing at this point, you still think fixed income is going to kind of stay where it is for a while. I mean, well, it certainly has stayed that way for a while and even gotten lower in terms of yields. Sure. Let's assume that it does stay uh, stable from the Fed standpoint. Then you're just looking at, um, you're looking at total return less than inflation, um, I like to call that safely losing money every day. Yeah. And so um, it, when you reach for yield, the problem with this market is if you go out in duration, you're taking incredible interest rate risk at, at rates this low. And the high yield market, we're looking at remarkably tight spreads. So you get no reward for taking risk late in, a, late in an economic cycle, and you're not getting yield to support it. Of course, you could always go to Germany and pay them to hold your money. Right. So. But is there some point that we need to think about capital preservation? Jason and I talk a lot about this because there are times that I've certainly watched with this equity market and we are up, you know, well into 20%. And then, we, of course, we get kind of a, a tremendous sell-off. And that hurts investors, that volatility. I think over the past two years, right, we haven't gone you know, really anywhere. So I do wonder about capital preservation in this environment and what you need to do and maybe you should be doing. Yeah, I, I definitely, so we're Your not- Your face says, yeah, you don't need it. Yeah, well, I, <laughs> we're, not, we're not in our most aggressive stance that we've been. You so we're, okay. we're, we're constructively positive, but, but we're mindful that valuations are about where they should be to slightly elevated. This is an active market. You have to be active in this market. There's value. Emerging markets look interesting. International looks interesting. Small over large. There are places to put money. And frankly, in the private equity market, yeah. stay away from the big unicorn play. But in the private equity market, in boring, old, grinded out, great businesses to buy marketplace, you can make money there with lower volatility, not less risk. But lower volatility. So let's talk about that yeah. because private equity has, we talk about it a lot on this show. It's a little bit of a holy grail on both sides of the equation in the sense that the private equity funds, they would love to get more individual investors and not just big institutional investors, not just the highest uh, of the, or the wealthiest of the family offices. How do you create something? Because I think you have that gives customers exposure to this. Right. So what we've done is we think that private equity long term is a part of a portfolio. Mm -hmm. It gets uh, over time. It has it has produced returns in excess of the public markets, less volatility, no different on risk. And again, we differentiate volatility is the movement of money. Risk is losing it. Yeah. So with private equity, if you're smart and you treat it like public equity, understand where there's value. Mm -hmm. Don't chase the hot dot you can make an excellent rate of return because the money isn't hot. It's long-term investing. So what we've done is we've said, 
our individual investors should be in this. We've actually created uh, a company called Independent Access Partners. And what we do is we pull our clients' money together into one access vehicle, and we are one big investor. But here's the key, and this is the secret, especially in the race to zero that we keep hearing in our business. We do it without a management fee or a carry. Ah. This is a service to clients, and these are the type of differentiations that businesses like ours need to capture a client. But these are for certain investors, correct? They are for certain investors. I mean, I'm They're just for, saying that you have to a certain wealth position, right? I correct. Mean, you have to be accredited investor yeah. for some, qualified for others. So this is not for everybody. And frankly, private equity is not for everybody. And and. And also, but I do frankly, wonder when you say that, because we have these constant public-private, you know, public versus private markets. I do wonder how many, you know, regular investors who are looking at their four hundred one k are being squeezed out of, you know, tremendous returns because they don't get to play in that private equity space. I mean, you could buy KKR; it's up almost fifty percent this year. Blackstone's up almost eighty percent. Is that the way to do it? Well. So those investors unknowingly are starting to invest in private equity yeah, uh, because public equity funds are starting to buy private equity. And, and I don't think they belong there. That's chasing a hot uh, dot. Okay. Um, and I think we just had a moment with WeWork where um, the, the concept of the valuation is anything anybody will do a raise at. Um, I think that's now going to be challenged. Companies are going to have to show that they are actual businesses with earnings. And, and bright futures to, to get higher valuations. Um, sure, uh, you should be able to get higher returns, but we have to be honest about private equity. It's a long-term play, yeah. it's illiquid, and it's not certain. Just because today's, today's returns are high, what we know about private equity, on the average it gets good returns, but vintage year by vintage year, those returns are spread pretty dramatically. Mm -hmm. So inevitably, what happens to the everyday investor? They go in after the return, chase the hot dot, get the lower return. What we're trying to do is bring stability and move them where the money isn't. Right. Got well, it. the other very important point, and I know you know this well, is the idea of not all private equity funds are created equal. And once you get out of that top quartile, you may be looking at a fund that, you know, isn't delivering much at all, if anything. Great conversation. We love having you back. Leo Kelly, founder, chief executive officer and co-chief investment like officer. Is he like a cousin or an, of you know, Capital relative Advisors. here? No. Come no. on. If, you guys can if, tell if, me. If we were, I'd be the shirt tail cousin part of uh, this family. <laughs> He's based down in Baltimore. Here with us in New York City today. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.